Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone and welcome to Pixels, a podcast for the discerning gamer. Hello everyone and welcome to Pixels, which is a show where we try to cover uh, the video game news from the past couple of weeks with a tiny bit of analysis, a tiny bit of industry look at how things are happening and what they mean and generally just, uh, you know, covering the news for video games, which um, I'm not sure how many podcasts do in that way. Um, maybe they all do. I don't listen to podcasts. It's for geeks. Uh, I'm welcoming to the show today uh, two good friends, or at least one good friend and someone that I respect tremendously. I'll let you figure out which is which. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to dig myself even deeper in that one. So I'm just going to tell you who they are. Uh, first of all, Garrett uh, Weinsroll. Did I get it right? Weinsroll. Yeah, yeah there you go. Pretty close. All right. You got Almost. Uh, Garrett, of course, is a uh, longtime podcaster, which you might you might have heard uh, in Into the Nexus, The Angry Chicken, and even Overwatchers, uh, the show we did together for three episodes, or four episodes, covering um, Overwatch and, and what we knew at the time of BlizzCon. I'm guessing we might get some more news uh, yeah, at uh, PAX East. I'm hoping for another episode. That would be great. Yeah, we might we might squeeze another episode of Overwatchers uh, sometime soonish. We'll see. Welcome, Garrett, to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I've uh, been wanting to come on this show, so I was happy to get the invite. You didn't want to come on this show? No one. No, no one does. I, I, I said I, I force people. <laughs> no, I heard you. I heard you, Mr. Weinsroll. Uh, the second person is uh, Oli, uh, a journalist I've known for a few years now uh, in my work. Well, I used to work at, at Blizzard Entertainment, for those who don't know, and we our paths uh, crossed when you, you were still a, a mere journalist and not the almighty editor of uh, Your Gamer. .net. <laughs> Hi, Patrick. How's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's uh, especially um, I'm especially happy to have you on the show because uh, we're going to be talking about the fact that you guys dropped review scores. Uh, I know recently. We, we made ourselves the story, which is something yeah. they say that journalists should never do. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point you, you have to make a tough call, and yeah, uh, you're not the only one. I mean, that has been a debate, a long-standing debate in the uh, uh, game reporting industry, and uh, I don't think it quite settles the 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 question but uh we'll we'll discuss this in a few minutes uh so thank you for being here um it's a pleasure 
<laughs> All right. Before we launch into the serious stuff, which include uh, Nintendo going uh, basically Candy Crush on us uh, and Apple promoting the opposite to Candy Crush and, of course, Peter Molyneux's uh, story from the past couple of weeks. Uh, very quickly, we just heard that uh, Valve is going to be showing uh, some of their VR systems for Steam at uh, GDC in uh, just a few days. Um, and they also will have the uh, Steam machines uh, showcased there after a, a long silence. Um, and of course, we're going to have uh, Project Morpheus from Sony at the GDC as well. Um, do you guys have huge hopes for, for that or do you not care? I mean, both the it seems to me that the Steam VR system and the Steam machines are the two most interesting things. But maybe that's because I'm PC biased. Uh, what do you guys think of all of that? I was really hoping to see more about the 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 controller for the Steam machines that we saw a few years back that uh, seemed to have kind of been delayed because they just kind of I don't know perplexed me and <laughs> when I first yeah. saw them. Then when I well, saw I, the, I'm the sure demo we're going to see it. I'm sure we're going to see it at uh, the new version of it at GDC, right? They can't show the Steam machine without the controller. It's kind of that's what it is, really. Um, the Steam machine is just a PC. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a good point. The thing is, like, I, I feel like that's probably closer to me actually getting a hold of it. I I don't really hold out any hopes for for me personally getting access to to a <laughs> VR headset anytime soon. Um, but I was really curious about how how having this controller, you know, whether I have a Steam machine or a PC on my living room television, would help me actually play PC games from the comfort mm. of my couch. That's yeah. That's the big uh, big question. Um, Ali, do you yeah, have I, faith? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with Garrett on the controller. I think it is absolutely the key to this entire thing. Although there's a, there's a, there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. Um, mostly, I'm really happy that we've got an actual appointment to see Valve. I think it's the first time in a couple of years that they're uh, <laughs> they're engaging with the press. They've gone pretty quiet for quite a long time now. So we've got um, our features editor Martin Robinson and our um, tech editor, uh, Digital Foundry's Rich Ledbetter, are both out there seeing Valve and, and will be bringing their impressions of uh, of Steam Machines back. So, yeah, I, I certainly think the um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what, what VR or, or possibly augmented reality uh, tech that they're bringing. But for me, it's all about um, uh, what they're actually doing from a hardware perspective, that controller, um, and uh, whether or not they can bring any kind of... Uh, manufacturing scale to the market because the problem I, I feel that they're always going to have with steam machines is that compared to uh, the games consoles they're going to be relatively expensive because unless valve decides to become a full-scale manufacturer they're not going to have the kind of economies of scale that um that microsoft and and sony do with their stable platforms so that's yeah that that is going to be very very interesting to see how it develops but they, there is still there's a big story developing gdc this week with um Valve uh, uh, mounting a big push and Microsoft as well with uh, the new version of DirectX uh, pushing that hard across both Xbox One and Windows uh, 10. So there's a there's a, a slightly different, we're used to seeing uh, Microsoft and Sony square off at these things, but uh, Microsoft have a slightly different rival and a slightly different 
theatre mm. of, opera- of operations this year. So it's going to be a really interesting story next week, I think. You know, it's it's kind of what you're saying about the, the price and the economy of scale. I think there's one key difference between the steam machines and the consoles being that the consoles are obviously set in stone for the next few years and they're already two years old. And at the time when they came out, they weren't incredibly powerful PCs. I mean, Mm -hmm. essentially the architecture is that of the PC for both the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One. And the big advantage, and I suspect even the reason why Valve went underground for a while, uh, besides the super important uh, element of the controller, which is completely key to what they're trying to do, which is bring PC gaming to the lean back uh, context of the couch. Uh, The the reason, the other reason might have been the fact that they thought, let's get those, let, let those guys get their you know, moment of glory when with the releases of the consoles. And once the technology catches up and allows us to create comparable hard- hardware, not just for them, but for their partners who are OEMs in general, um, comparable hardware at a more reasonable price, we can come back with a bigger push. And if those this generation of consoles does keep going for another, you know, three, four, five years, uh, we might get machines that are actually a lot more powerful than the consoles in our homes for reasonable prices fairly soon. I guess what I'm trying to say is steam machines are not set, they're fluid. Uh, and the key will be managing to make those work with the different games and getting the ecosystem to work in a simple way uh, out of that. I think they have a card, to, a serious card to play there. That's definitely true. And the other thing to remember is that they um, their hardware will scale both ways. So they could potentially be making uh, really cheap boxes, very small, low power units based on mobile technology, roughly comparable with like last generation consoles that you could buy to play your indie gaming collection on for I don't know um, you know 100 150 euros something like that. So. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see because they're going to come into this market with a very different model, being Valve, doing things a different way, the way Valve like to do. So it's, it's definitely going to be a fascinating story. I can't wait to see what they've uh, mm. what they've got. You know, actually, what what you're saying about cheaper cheaper machines, uh, it it rings very true, especially because I've had a PC that was relatively old for a while, and we're not in the mid-2000s anymore, and even old PCs can play games at lower settings. Even, you know, I have a five-year-old MacBook, which was already old when I, when I bought it, and it still plays a lot of the games that are coming out, admittedly at a lower setting, but they can, whereas for, for a lot of the consoles, you either buy the game for your console or it doesn't work. Um, you're, I think there's that that kind of scalability of power um, could be a, a definite asset for for Valve. So, yeah, interesting to see what they're going to be doing in the next year or so. Um, PS4 is the best-selling console once again for January, uh, according to the NPD. That's U.S. numbers only. Uh, so that's not so surprising because the Xbox One uh, price 
<laughs> hiked up to its quote-unquote normal price for a few days, for a couple of weeks, and then it got back down to 349 in the US. I think the more interesting aspect of those numbers that we got from NPD was the fact that uh, this generation of consoles, the Xbox uh, One and PS4, are uh, seeing 60% larger installed base uh, than the last generation at a, a, after the same amount of time. That's enormous. 60%. That's a They're, huge, yeah, that's a big increase. It's, uh, I mean, you thought PS3 and, and Xbox 360 were successful. Uh, this generation is killing it on every, you know, on every metric. And, and that sort of gives an interesting look at the fact that, yes, Microsoft is, do, is not doing as well as Sony this generation, but they're still selling a metric ton of, of machines. So. Oh, they're, yeah, they're, they're doing great. They had a good Christmas as well, much better than the, than the year before. Um, and, I, I mean, all signs point towards it being a roughly 50-50 split in most markets as it was, uh, as it was last time around, I think. Um, the the thing with the, the console selling much faster is is really surprising. Uh, we went into this generation with actually relatively low expectations, but um, the the sales have been way faster than we've expected. I would probably attribute that mostly to the fact that the last generation was exceptionally long. It was more like it differed between the two machines, but it was more like eight years rather than the five years uh, console lifespan that we're used to. So I think. I think a, lo a lot of um, gamers were really ready for a new generation. Yeah, um, pent-up demand. And uh, it seems as well that since neither machine has had any massively convincing uh, exclusive killer app games released for it yet, um, I, it seems as well that it's just, just demand for new hardware that's driving this rather than, than people wanting to play particular games. Like the biggest selling games on these consoles are, are mostly ones you can play on last-gen machines as well. Mm. Yeah, you know, Call of Duty and FIFA and the rest of it. So I think that's what's going on there. I think uh, after this year, it's probably going to slow down. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a... Uh, we thought the console golden age was over, but uh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe this is Maybe this is it. <laughs> Well, it's cyclical. It's always, you know, it yeah. goes to, from PC to, to consoles to... And, and you're right. I mean, honestly, there isn't enormously compelling content on, on both of the new generation, quote-unquote, uh, consoles. I mean, there are games for sure, uh, you know, Second Son, uh, Forza, and these kinds of things. There are games. It's just there, there aren't any serious system sellers. They're selling just because people just want to buy new stuff. Uh, and I think that now that, you know, this year, um, hopefully the, the real console sellers, system sellers are going to be showing up. So it might uh, make the curve, uh, the, the, the curve of, of uh, console sales uh, keep it in the right direction. We'll see, I guess. I'm curious, um, what do you guys think if the, uh, if the Xbox had launched at, at 350? Do you think it'd be even a contest at this point? It depends on the market. Uh, I mean, you guys in the US and UK have had a very Microsoft-friendly uh, history, uh, yeah. especially for the 360 uh, timeframe. Uh, in France, we're much more Japan-friendly, and PlayStation has never really lost its crown, even at the har most uh, horrible times of PS3 when it's, it launched at, uh, at 600. Yeah, and it's e even more so in other European markets, places like Germany and Spain are like 90% PlayStation. So, yeah. 
Um, yeah, but, no, I, th- I think it would. I think it would be a, a pretty much a, a fairly straight fight. Uh, they, I mean, they they definitely launched at a disadvantage, but um, given the the fact that uh, Sony had a power advantage and had the games are better on play, PlayStation. Uh, and and would have done that. I and mean, maybe if Microsoft's tack had on Connect had been different, and they'd unlocked yeah. that a power reserve for all games from the start. Yeah, that, uh, that's certainly no, what. I think, uh... I think they launched at a different disadvantage. I think they're clawing it back now. But I think we would be looking at a roughly straight split between the two machines. I think. Th- uh, and uh, yeah, oh, I think, think... it's probably going to stay that way. Well, if the, I think if they had launched at. Uh, you know, uh, $400, which was the price of the PS4, I think in the US and UK, it wouldn't be a contest. I think so. Uh, Microsoft would have taken it. I mean, if they had done everything right from the start, uh, if they didn't have the controversy of Connect and price and their, mm-hmm. you know, TV focus and all of that, which we've talked about to death, uh, I think they would have kept their crown. It was just... Uh, you know, in in those markets, I th- mm. th- there is no compelling reason, uh, no, there is no compelling enough reason to choose one over the other. So if they have had kept the momentum from the previous generation, uh, I think they would have, yeah. you know, killed it. But yeah. Um. All right. One of the uh, most interesting story from the past uh, couple of weeks or so, uh, you guys at Eurogamer announced that you are going to drop review scores um and basically any almost any kind of labeling uh, you're still going to get the recommended essential or avoid uh labels uh, for some of the games not all of them mm-hmm. uh, and you're following uh <laughs> Uh, rest in peace joystick um that well not following you came uh, they did that as well about a month ago before they were closed by uh, aol mm. it's a, an ongoing discussion uh in the gaming industry and in the press uh but can you take us through the the thought process that got you to to completely drop scores so like you say it, it, it's an ongoing discussion has been for many many years i mean i remember uh talking about this stuff when i used to be a writer for edge magazine 10 years ago uh, and it's um it's a conversation we've had more than once before in eurogamers history about whether we wanted to make this change uh um, we had our reasons We've always had our reasons for wanting to do it as as writers, I think, and as critics. We felt that the, the debate around scores was was not um, very productive and it uh, it often distracted from what we were trying to say in our reviews and uh, would lead to misinterpretation of the reviews. Um, but at the same time, we always held back from it because we felt like we were essentially would be taking something. We were doing it for our own reasons, but not really thinking like a reader and thinking about what they want and what they need. And we felt like we were taking away, taking something away from them. Uh, so the difference this time is that we really felt like this was in the interests of the user to do it. And, and um, uh, also with the badge system, we felt like that we had something that we could offer them that would still give them uh, a, a useful context for our reviews. Not just the badges I put out, but um, these short 150, 140 character summaries we do at the start of the review which are very, very quick to read, but give you, I think, a lot more detailed information than uh, a number out of 10 can in terms of how we feel about a game. But um, there's there been a lot of change over the last couple of years in video games, generally in the way they're developed, the way they're marketed, uh, the way we get to experience them as members of the press and the way the public get to experience them. 
And in the context of that, particularly towards the end of the last year, we felt that our review system with the scores out of 10 was not working very well for readers, particularly around certain reviews of certain games like Assassin's Creed Unity, Halo, the Master Chief Collection and others. Uh, we realised that we needed to clean up our reviews policy a bit and we needed to look at whether or not scoring was working as part of that because we felt that putting 7 out of 10 on Assassin's Creed Unity didn't really help the reader understand what the problems with the game were, what its strengths were, and whether or not they should go out and buy it. Um, so aside and- from the from the launch issues of the game, you mean like defining where the game succeeds and fails exactly. when it works, kind of. It's not just yeah, about yeah. the launch issues, right? Yes, no, absolutely. And the, the score was a huge distraction for us, where, we, where our review said the game has launch issues, but we actually looked beyond that and said there are, there are deeper issues with the design of Assassin's Creed game that need to be refreshed. And that, that got completely drowned out in all of the noise and discussion about our score. And we felt that it was something that was actually of great importance to, uh, to readers was, was getting missed. And, and, and there were a few other examples, like uh, Halo the Master Chief Connection, another game with launch issues. Now, it's fundamentally an excellent package, but uh, has been flawed by a, a really major specific problem that affects one side of the game, but not the campaign side. Mm. How do you reflect that in a score out of 10? You can't. What you need is to be able to say, we recommend this game to campaign players, but if you're really into Halo multiplayer, uh, you should hold off until there's a matchmaking fix. You can't really encapsulate that in a score out of 10. These are the issues that are really important to... Uh, games buyers right now and I don't think that review scores help them make those decisions at all Mm. but like I say we wanted to give something back as well and we still wanted to be able to put the Eurogamer seal of approval on games uh, so that our our fans and the the gaming community at large know when we really like something um, and that communicates that sense of enthusiasm as well like that's another aspect of the scores out of 10. They became this sort of... Yeah, you can cheer for... They, for they, they became a bit of a political football, I guess, within yeah. the games community. But there wasn't that sense of... Uh, it had become so charged, the scores around certain games, there wasn't that sense of just a, a great in, a surge of enthusiasm when something gets a high score. Not, not like it used to be. So I felt like that was a big thing. Another thing was, uh, I had this conversation with some PRs. They were saying, it's crazy. We've got to the situation where eight out of 10 is considered a bad score. How, how did we get here? <laughs> and that, that struck me as something that needs to be fixed as well. And, uh, you know, and I wanted to be able, so it's about how, uh, how these scores are interpreted as well. And there's, a, there's like two, three decades of, of history of games reviewing behind the way we interpret certain numbers. And we, we take, say, 8 out of 10 to mean, because of the way gaming used to be done as a kind of technical benchmarking thing, we take 8 out of 10 to mean this game is technically solid. But what if you want to go beyond that, look at a game as a, as a, as a work of art and say, well, um, this game is technically solid, but it bores the life out of me. It's creatively dead. It has, does <laughs> nothing new for its genre. Or what if you want to say this game is technically a mess, like a like a, a deadly premonition for it is a game mm. I always use as an example. This game is technically a mess, but I laughed crazily while I was playing it, and I would recommend the experience to anybody because it's just unmissable. Like you can't you put know, an eight out of ten on deadly recommend re, re, uh, deadly premonition, but you can say recommended as long as you spell somewhere to spell out those caveats as well. So it was really a build up of all of these things. Some of them that we've been thinking for years, some of them that were quite recent where we felt 
the score was just not really helping readers out. But that was the thing that really pushed us over the edge. We really felt the scores were not helping readers. Um, and you know, it, it, not yeah, everyone it, agrees with us, but uh, that's that's where that's what we came to. I'm, so I always try to have a balanced uh, uh, look at things, and certainly I'm going to try and see the other side of the coin here. Uh, but when you were talking about Deadly Premonition, I haven't played it uh, really, but it, it came it immediately conjured 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 in my mind uh, the image of uh, Dragon Age uh, Inquisition, which I hadn't played really when it came out, but I started playing this weekend. And it's funny, this this game has earned Game of the Year awards everywhere. Uh, not everywhere, but it, in many uh, instances. And it's not a bad game per se, but it feels so... You know, it feels like a game that was trying very very hard to tick as many boxes as it could it's a game uh, it's a and, 100% a game that's been designed for metacritic and this yeah, is this yeah, is one of the well, things that we wanted to find exactly yeah and uh, and so what what it it brought the conclusion it brought me to was that sometimes in order to to be the game of the year you you don't need to be the game that everyone loves the most but you need to be the game that everyone hates the least and <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> right that that i i might have stolen this from somewhere i don't remember but it it rings very true and it's impossible to 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 um to to grade on a on a score you know you can't say it's not a bad game it's just it's going to please some people but uh so and i want to come back to the metacritic thing which is an enormous enormous issue or you know topic in the in the gaming industry right now but before that i want to go to garrett and ask Certainly, there are aspects of of scores that are positive, right? I, I, oh, I, it I, can, yeah. I mean, for, I honestly never put too much weight on them because, I mean, even taking just a, a formal review out of it, I mean, think about how you talk to your friend about a game like via you know a water cooler mm. conversation you know go well i was really hoping for uh, for it to be a seven but it's more like a 6.5 it's very disappointing <laughs> nobody exactly. talks like that um they're yeah. like well they, they, you start to talk about the mechanics or you talk about the, how how the introduction was and how it either captured you or, or kind of put you off i mean and that's the reason i read a review i want i usually go to reviews written by people i enjoy the opinion of or maybe have a, a i know that they kind of share similar values that i do and what i look for in a game and i like to read what their impressions were and and just kind of get a feel for what their experience was like i don't, I don't just scroll all the way down to the end look at the score and be like okay uh, you know it's it's above that 0.5 threshold of what i was just hoping they would say this game is i guess i'll go buy it so okay let's be honest for just a second i personally do not like gaming scores either but do you guys never scroll down to the bottom of a review to see the oh, score just to get all right of, of course you do of course you do and of course i always <laughs> the first thing i looked at when i would get copy in from our writers okay <laughs> like and, and so there is a value to the score oh, yeah, there, no, it's not it, like uh, absolutely but it, it's part of, i mean, part of it was is to actually break out of that ourselves, uh, part of implementing this new system. Like there's certain bad habits that game reviewers have uh, that are brought on by it. the score being an unavoidable uh, sort of highlight of the review. And you end up, often you end up, you decide to give a game a certain score and you end up writing your review to explain the reason, explain why you've given it that number as opposed to another number, rather than writing the review 
about the things about the game that are most interesting. Mm. So that leads to a less interesting review to read, and 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 that's definitely part of it. I mean, I'm not, I I don't want to claim that our way of doing things is the only possible way of doing things and uh, I don't want to say that review scores are inherently bad because I don't actually believe that's true I think there are there are certain cultural problems within video games and the games community about how scores are treated that uh, that I felt that we wanted to respond to by moving to a new system mm. but I'm not going to say that they've got no worth or at all because I don't think that's actually true but mm. there are there are definitely some problems in uh, Metacritic and its influence on the industry is one and general inflation of scores and the way those those numbers are interpreted is another. The fact that the eight out of ten is a bad score thing, I guess. So, the, the uh, yeah, I think for scores, there's at least one category of people that need those scores, and that's the random, you know, grandma who's want to find a who wants to find a game for her kid uh, or her grandkid, and and she's she has to know what it if the game is worth it or not worth her 60 or 70 bucks um however you know i i do also scroll down to the bottom of the page to see the score i think i would be just as well served by a you know 140 or 300 characters summary um with the 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 badges or labels that's what i'm looking for i'm looking for a short evaluation of what the game is worth i just want to spend a little bit of time to see if i should read the whole review or maybe get more interest in that game i'm not necessarily looking for the score itself it's just i want to know quickly should i look into this a little bit more um but uh, it, oh yeah go ahead Ollie. one um one small aspect of this change but one that was for really important for me is that we moved that to the top of the review. And actually, if I right. had been allowed to make this change, I was going to do with that with the score anyway, because the whole scrolling past all of the text to read the score and then scrolling back up to the top of the page to me is just terrible <laughs> uh, terrible usability for a website. I don't know why sure. anybody was... I think it's a leftover from print days when the score used to always appear at the, the foot of the page. But um, Well, I think it's even, it's even more cynical than this. I think it's because when you put the 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 score at the bottom or at the end of the page people sort of have to look through the the entire page to go to the score whereas yeah. if you put it at the top they just look at it and then leave it's um, a, yeah if it, it may be so but that's not actually that useful because yeah oh there's there's complication things to do with google and ad viewability that i won't go into but um no it's uh the, the whole end of the page thing needs to stop i think you just need to have the courage <laughs> to put the score that's my yeah. advice to everybody who's keeping scores put the score at the top of the page mm. and uh, i think you'll find that people spend more time actually reading the text if they don't have to scroll all the way through it first so mm. um metacritic garrett do you use metacritic be honest now do you ever I'm go actually, to metacritic i'm, I'm being 100 percent honest i don't think i've ever gone to the website Wow, I don't you are, for whatever reason. I I just it honestly could not care less. Wow, that's I'm actually impressed. Even you I, know I, for I, for games I, I, or or movies or anything. Uh, no, I for for movies. I don't know why. For movies, I am slightly more interested in like an aggregate score, so I will check out Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. Um, but I've I've never <laughs> visited Metacritic. I always hear the discussions around it. Um, I understand the you know the issues some people have um but it's just never been a, a I, i've played video games since i could before i could read mm. so i'm not concerned I, I i know where to go what what research i need to do before i figure out if i'm gonna spend my 60 bucks on a game or not 
And I think that's that's actually a key difference. Uh, you guys at Eurogamer and, you know, the, the people who are actually having this discussion about the importance of score are people who are, you know, core gamers who are passionate about this medium. Uh, but score might be important for a lot of people who aren't that into it and you just want to know, as I was saying earlier, if, they, if it's worth their 70 bucks. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, those people... Who are you calling those people? Uh, those people <laughs> are um, the the blunt of the the gaming uh, the, the buyers. You know, it's the people who buy FIFA and Call of Duty, uh, and and that's it. They buy a couple of games a year. They're the people who buy games as presents, and so maybe the scores are good for them, but not so Im as important for us who are more core gamers. But in that context, even Metacritic has transformed. Uh, our our industry in many ways and and you mentioned it as well in the uh, in the announcement that you in the blog announcement that you mm. made Ali. Yeah, so this is this is a, a tricky thing. I think you're right about a, a broader audience needing scores. Is why I'd, I wouldn't necessarily recommend IGN, for example, drop drop their review scores. Um, and also, like it, it's a relatively easy decision for us for us to make because our audience is much more at the hardcore end, uh, hardcore gaming end. But um, the, the problem with Metacritic isn't really with the site itself, to be honest with you. I, I, and to answer your question to Garrett, I, I did use and do still use Metacritic. Uh, I, I don't look at the, or at least I don't pay any attention to what the overall score is because I find that rather meaningless. But it's very useful to me to go to a single site where I can see all of the reviews that have been published for a game and see what the spread of opinion on, on it is and just have them all listed in the same place. Obviously, that's a useful thing. And that's all the guys who set up Metacritic really set out to do. And I don't blame them for that at all. The problem that I have is with the publishing executives who focus all of their efforts on getting an 85 in Metacritic. They, and they, just, and they just put to, huge pressure on their, on their yeah. PR teams to attain that. Just, just to, uh, to explain the thing, if people don't know, Metacritic, if you don't have a score uh, in your review, most likely you're not going to be part of the Metacritic aggregate. So that does have um, implications for your bottom line as, as well, because you don't get the traffic uh, from, you know, already on that side, you're sort of impacting your business when you decide to, to uh, take scores away. Yeah, uh, and. That's and as, and the sorry, the Patrick. on the PR side of things, um, it's it also. I, I, let's get back to the PR side of things. Sorry, get, yeah. you wanted to respond to the to the ref, referral thing. Yeah, it, it's not as big as you'd think. At least not for uh, for okay. a relatively large site as like ours. It's it's a it's an amount of referral traffic, but it's nothing compared to uh, to what you get from Google search or from your loyal readers. Mm. So it was something that we felt you know quite yeah. able to to sacrifice. Which, by the um, way, you 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 managed, you got uh, you sneak not sneaked in, but you you yeah. put together something to keep, to stay in Google search results with the scores because if you don't, then you it's just basically cutting yourself off from serious part of your business. But um, um, so yeah, the the influence on the on the industry itself, people. I mean, I've heard. I was lucky enough to be at Blizzard, where usually uh, the games are. Uh, honestly, you know, I'm not trying to 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 be biased here, but I think Blizzard games usually have a level of quality that we don't need to to you know 
we they don't need to worry about the scores too much they know usually they're going to be reviewing fairly well um but i've heard horror stories where people had their uh bonuses uh, part portions of their income uh you know pr or marketing or that kind of thing indexed on uh, a certain metacritic score and that's you know actual the way things are actually going it's not hypothetical uh, and i'm i'm guessing that you've uh heard about those things as well ollie yeah and i don't think i i really don't think that that's that's healthy because like for all whatever you think about metacritic it's not it's certainly not you can't think it's the only barometer only possible barometer of quality for a game and it's certainly not either the uh completely without flaws as a way to assess uh, to assess the quality of the game and and that, and that it was having the an impact on people's livelihoods it was having major impact on our commercial relationships with publishers because uh, you know our, our score if it was you know a point layer lower than the average could affect where the metacritic score came out it was just my, my worry was that if, if publishers were focusing on what worked on Metacritic, they're, they're focusing on essentially on what's going to work across a very broad spread of reviews and that's going to be uncontroversial. It comes back to your point about Dragon Age. It's the kind of game design that's going to please most of the people most of the time. And that, that is usually something that's, that's very big, has a very long play time, has loads and loads of features, probably more than it actually needs and um oh, that's that on on dragon age it's striking yeah it, the, the, the game is uh is, is bloated i patrick i think you're a little bit crazy because i thought the game was was amazing but there, that game has some severe bloat issues hmm. um, um so yeah i and, and I, I felt like that's not at least in within mainstream games that's how the metacritic the influence of metacritic was being felt and i just don't think it was i didn't feel like it was a very healthy trend really so I, I like i say i've got nothing against the metacritic guys actually we had a very good relationship with them while we were working together and uh they care about reviews and i care about reviews but um it's more about how the industry and and the gaming audience as a whole treated metacritic which i thought was mm. way out of proportion compared to the way like the film audience treats a, a site like Rotten Tomatoes. And also uh, the, the inflation of the scores was really visible. Like if you flicked between the film tab and the games tab on Metacritic, you would expect <laughs> a film to be somewhere in the 70s if it's done really, really well. Whereas with games, it's like if, if it's not in the mid 80s, forget about it. Part sure. of that, of course, though, is, that, is to do with how expensive games are, which is a, a whole other conversation. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, certainly it, I, I think we've been fairly uh, forthcoming with the idea that scores aren't bad inherently it's just that's all that matters in the well not all but it's it's a it has a disproportionate amount of importance it feels like yeah. uh, in the gaming industry and certainly in order to correct that uh, we we at, at some point someone needs to try and do things a little bit differently um so as someone that also had a uh, i i in, i've done you know different review shows from cultural products to movies to different things and usually i try to go with if i have a system i usually go with you know it's recommended to fans of this genre or it's recommended to everyone because it's trans it transcends the genre or it's just not recommended and, and i think those three um, labels uh, that three-tier system is different from a th you know three stars or two stars or one stars or one star, but it, it encapsulate, encapsulates enough of the 
what we want to express uh, yeah. that it could work and, and not be... Uh, I'm, a, I'm actually quite a big fan of the five-star system, the way it's used in film reviews. And I, yeah. I considered moving to that for a while. But the problem with games is, is that the game's audience, they just translate it into points out of 10 out or 100. Yeah. And for me... And then you have star, to, ha to add me, half stars, stars means, and... Yeah, no, and, that, and then you're just back where you started. For yeah. me, three stars means belongs to this sort of broad if you like this sort of thing middle category of quality but to a gaming audience three stars means 60 out of 100 and that's yeah. that's a very very different thing it's much more specific so that's ultimately why we decided not to go that way but i do yeah no i've got a lot of uh, i've got a lot of affection as someone who used to read a lot of film reviews when he was a kid uh, in magazines like empire and so on i've got a lot of affection for the five star system and uh, yeah, if I was starting a new site now, I don't know. That might be the way I would go. But um, <laughs> I, I th I'm, I'm pretty happy with what we came up with. Uh, obviously, it's very early days in terms of seeing how our audience reacts to it. Uh, the initial response was very positive. Uh, and so far, the traffic for our reviews hasn't completely gone down the toilet. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy for now. So last question before we move on. Um, what has the reaction of the uh, publisher side of things? You know, how, how have they reacted to your decision uh, at Eurogamer? Um, so that's been, uh, that's been um, pretty positive. Uh, uh, there's been some surprise and uh, on the marketing side I think there, there's a few people who are mourning the loss of being able to put Eurogamer 9 out of 10 and 10 out of 10 on their <laughs> on their marketing but I, hopefully our recommended and essential badges will give those guys something else that they that they want to use there's, there's quite a lot of relief particularly from the PR people who I talk to because they they were working for bosses who expected that they could influence Metacritic scores by influencing <laughs> the scores and that they were trying to patiently trying to explain to their bosses you know i don't actually write the reviews i don't put the scores on the end of them they're going to be what they're going to be um uh, so it gives them ammunition to be able to turn to their bosses and say look this major site the biggest site i work with in the uk that's known for its reviews is not part of this system anymore so from that point of view they're pleased some of them are quite relieved because we're not going to be dragging down their metacritic anymore Maybe that's not a positive thing, but at the end of the day, we made this decision for, for readers, not for publishers. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, it's been pretty positive. I was also surprised that PRs from a couple of uh, very big publishers, um, both of whom, incidentally, are really big believers in Metacritic, that uh, told me that they expected that we would start a trend with this and some other big sites would follow suit. So I don't know if that's true, but uh, I, I was surprised to hear that from some PRs at major, major firms. Hmm. It's yeah. I mean, again, I really don't think we need every site to ditch scores, but I would be very interested to see more um, going with a with a less uh, numbers based uh, system. Um, all right, I guess we'll see how things evolve uh, in the next few months, and uh, I'll be looking forward to reading your uh, non uh, scored reviews. Um, Talking about uh, things that don't have a balance in gaming, we can talk about apps and uh, apps that are free to play, which seem to be devouring the entirety of the mobile market. Um, just as a frame of reference, Candy Crush Saga uh, <laughs> took in $1.3 billion for 2014 alone. Candy Crush Saga, that's one game. So when you see those types of numbers, I think it's not surprising that uh, 
uh, everyone starts chasing them. And that has an effect, an adverse effect on, on all of the entrants in the field because that's all everyone wants. And especially on the store where there's infinite uh, availability, you start to drown if you're not uh, using the system that everyone else is using because it's very difficult to get visibility. Um, well, Apple is apparently experimenting with something I, I really hope to see a lot more of, which is giving more visibility to games that do not have in-app purchases by simply featuring them on the App Store front page. I believe it's the case in uh, in Australia. Um, they started that category, and I hope it's going to get expanded um, because Apps with in-app purchases are becoming a real problem for the mobile gaming industry, which is a real gaming industry, in spite of what a lot of us gamers would like to think. Um, so, I don't know, I guess, Garrett, you're, you're uh, a big fan of apps, or of one specifically, um, <laughs> that does have in-app purchases. Uh, any, any thoughts on this uh, move by Apple and the, the market in general? Uh, well, I mean, I just think it's 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 great because I honestly barely play games on my on my iPhone, and this is one of the reasons. Uh, for whatever reason, I just I haven't I I have very little interest to go around finding sources that kind of do the searching for me. And if you go in there alone looking for a new game, uh, it's just it's absurd the amount of stuff you have to sift through to find something that's. Uh, if you're like me and you can't stand in-app purchases, it's it's, it's kind of hard to um, I don't know to kind of get that out of it. Also, Threes is on the front page of this thing, and that just makes me happy. Oh, such a great game. <laughs> that thing just oozes charm. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's That's the, the example, but it doesn't have enough purchases, does it? I can't remember now. No, it doesn't, and that's why it's on the front page of their, pay, what they're calling it, pay once and play, which... Right. Yep, yeah, so it's basically this, pay, pay to play. Um I, I, I'm really worried about the influence that free-to-play has on the industry as a whole because uh, it's not there is a way to do free-to-play well, uh, but the energy systems and the, the way some um, developers or publishers even push uh, game design uh, to force people to, to pay if they want to play, uh, is concerning, but even more than that, uh, as we were saying, you can't find the games that you want if you don't want to in-game uh, purchases. No, there's there's little to no. Well, I mean, there's a barrier, but it's a tiny barrier to get a game on on the App Store. So, uh, I mean, the the pure volume, it, it's just it's it's about out of hand. So, um, Ali, are you a mobile gamer at all? Um, I don't play a lot of mobile games. Uh, I do. That's to be honest. It's not really to do with in-app purchases. It's uh, it's just uh, a preference thing. I, I like when I play games on my mobile. It's ninety percent of the time it's solitaire. It's something completely mindless. But, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm very pleased uh, to see Apple make this move. Uh, part of me cynically wonders whether they're doing it because there's been a lot of negative publicity around kids spending thousands of <laughs> Uh, dollars without uh, realizing it on in-app purchases oh i'm um, sure i'm sure it has to do with that i'm I'm sure it's part of their thing but um i think it will generally like the the whole mobile gaming industry has been crying out for apple to take a slightly more active curatorial role on, on the app store for a long time and, and this is a, a positive sign of them doing that um and i i think i think it hopefully uh 
it will spread the wealth a bit more because I mean you you quote the 1.3 billion dollars for Candy Crush and that is an incredible figure but it's one game and it's it's the only game it's the only game in town there's like maybe the top five uh, are making serious money but after that you have you the the revenues fall off a cliff whereas when you're with the new sort of pay to pay once to play category you can imagine people buying more games, playing them for a little while and then moving on to something else. And that's going to be healthier for the industry all around. That's a, a, an absolute no-brainer. So it's really good to see. But um, the one thing that mystifies me is why free-to-play has developed so differently on PC and on mobile. Because on PC, uh, you generally got it's generally settled down now to, I think, a fairly healthy uh, ecosystem where you've got games that have been designed really well for free-to-play with business models that make sense. So I'm talking about Hearthstone and League of Legends and games like that. I've got absolutely no problem with the way those games are delivered and the way the kind of content they sell, the pricing. It all makes perfect sense. You're right. It's these energy systems that have become virulent among mobile games that, for me, it, it, it's something that runs contrary to what gaming is about. It, the idea that I, I'm engaged with this game where there comes a point where the game's going to say, nope, uh, you can't play anymore. All of that said... <laughs> Uh, you have to remember that this is actually quite a similar business model to what the arcades used to do. The, the That's arcades true. that we all remember so fondly from our youth. And how and and if you think that the difficulty on those games wasn't adjusted so that they would make they would take more quarters, then uh, you're kidding yourself. So Oh wow, yeah. I mean that's if go and try a little bit of retro gaming and you, when you look at the games from the eighties to early nineties, the reason they're difficult is that they wanted you to put it to put in another quarter because you just died. Uh, and it was outrageous. I mean when you look at things like yeah. Ghost and Goblins or it was ridiculous. That being said, guys, I don't know about you, but I would much rather play Turtles in Time on my iPhone than Candy Crush. Well, so I think it has a little bit to do with uh, the the difference between the casual and core uh, markets. Um, I mean, I, I like to define, uh, as listeners of the show will remember, uh, I like to define casual gamers as people who play when they have time as opposed to uh, core gamers who make time to play. And I think for, core, for, for casual gamers, they want something to pass time that's they're not going to put in money for it. They're, it's just something that they would do anything that is enjoyable as long as mm. it passes time and they don't have to invest too much. Uh, so they fall in that way uh, and then they start putting in money. But they wouldn't, I guess my point is, they wouldn't necessarily pay for a game from the get-go. Um, and since that market is enormous on mobile, uh, mm. comparatively, I'm fairly sure the core Mac market is 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 small uh even on mobile which is a high you know has a lot of gaming as a platform but um all of that said like candy crush would not be as popular as it, as it is if it wasn't a good game candy crush is a really sure. really good game it's a game a good game with a bad business model i'd like to say and and even that within that well that's hard to define model. because you know 1.3 billion it seems well, like yeah, a fairly quite. good business model yeah no you're, <laughs> of course you got me there but, I don't but know, as right, gamers, a, a, yeah. A, a business model that I don't like. Like for me, uh, selling uh, 50 more levels after I've finished 100, I don't have a problem with that because it's content. I, 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 as a gamer, identify the difference between something that is content and that is not content. And I don't mind paying for content. So if you give me 100 levels of Candy Crush for free and then ask me to pay for the next 50 I, I, and I'm enjoying myself, 
I'm, I'm down with that. If you're asking me to pay to be able to continue to play the game when I want to play it, then I get annoyed. But, um, <laughs> and it's your right. choice not, not to play doesn't... it, right? Hmm? It's your choice not to play it. A lot of people choose to pay and keep playing. Who are we to say they're wrong? Yeah, I, I mean, hmm. but I guess, I guess the way I look at it is that as is the case with uh, scores, there's an imbalance. The, the uh, free-to-play games are completely overwhelming everything else. And I think it's important that we restore a little bit of the balance as, I don't know, the Avatar would uh, in the famed cartoon. And uh, we see a little bit more of options for people who do want maybe more core gamers uh, because those machines can be excellent gaming machines and I feel like core gamers are, are stepping away from them because you don't find enough cool core games but anyway mm. um, that is sort of a chilling uh, realization when you take a look at Nintendo's latest foray in the po uh, Pokemon universe I don't know if you guys have had a chance to play Pokemon uh, Shuffle on 3DS I, I have not Okay. Um, but I've, I've heard um, plenty about it this week. <laughs> uh, not yet, but um, yeah, a couple of guys on my team have been playing it this week. And we've been chatting about it in the office. So you, you, you know that game we've been talking about, Candy Crush Saga. Basically, it has all of the aspects, game design related to payments that Candy Crush does. Uh, it, it might be a little bit more gentle. The stops are a little bit less hard um the the key one is the fact that you can only play a game by spending a heart uh, which is one of the currencies in the game and the hearts replenish at the rate at one every half an hour so if you pick up the game every three hours you can play five games which are uh you know it's a good chunk of time i would say it's about half an hour of game time um, and there's an entire side of the mechanics which are uh, capturing the Pokemons and them having mega evolutions in the puzzle and uh, being able to capture all of the Pokemons obviously it's very linear linear um, but it's not a bad game uh, quite the opposite actually it's it's a very it's quite a compelling game for a puzzle game and it's a good mix of po Pokemon and, and uh, puzzle but it has essentially the hearts are the energy system you can also buy uh updates or upgrades with uh or buffs i should say uh that improve your chances with uh gold which is another another currency in the game uh which you earn through um through playing it and of course there are the gems which that word alone has become so iconic for free-to-play games that it sends a chill down my spine when i say it so you have the gems that uh the game will hand out to you on a very uh low uh, amount uh you will get one every i don't know every certain amount of time but of course you can buy those and the gems allow you to buy hearts or gold Uh, and you can buy gems with real money. Now, the game itself is free, free to, to play, um, but you can spend money in-game through uh, the, the, the in-game uh, purchases. And the reason I'm really sort of uh, uh, taken aback by this game is that not only does it take its, its a page and several pages from the free-to-play-on-mobile uh, book, 
But it also resonates with something that Iwata has been saying at the latest uh, shareholders meeting, which is they're going to try to go in a direction that is more akin to cheaper games and phone games adaptations. And usually what we've meant with... Uh, phone games adaptations on consoles is sort of a switch to a pay-to-play model away from the free-to-play model. But I'm dreading now that what Iwata meant was let's we don't need to be on mobiles and rake in the money of the free-to-play system. What we can do is just import the free-to-play business model and do that on our existing hardware. So we don't even need to consider being putting our software on, on, on mobiles. Uh, and that's very frightening to me. Um, would that make sense for Nintendo to do? Is that something they would do? What, what do you guys think? I was never particularly hopeful that they would be putting Nintendo games on mobile in the first place. I mean, it would have been great to have some of the back catalog of, of older games on there. Um, well, I guess in, the, in this case, everyone loses because they're not on mobiles, and which I'm not for, but then they, they, they just bring in free-to-play uh, to... Yeah, yeah again, I, 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 I'm trying not to say bad business. They're just importing a, a negative business model uh, to their already existing platform. So you're not for it. No, I <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I'm usually, I try not to be so polarized, but we're hitting on a bunch of sore subjects for me today. Um, no, my, as the second I hear this, my brain just kind of turns off. It's like, oh, well, that's just a bad game and I won't play it. Uh, okay. And it's just my gut reaction. Obviously, there's a much larger conversation to be had than that. Um, but, but this is something that just immediately turns me off. Uh, and mm. I, I, I have zero interest in playing this game as a result of it. And I yeah. think that's kind of a... Uh, go ahead, Ollie. I, I'm not really sure this is going to work out for them, to be honest. I, I can understand why they're experimenting with it. Uh, the handheld is the absolute core of Nintendo's business, and um, they are, they've been getting killed, particularly in Japan, over the last... Well, ever since the 3DS launch, they've uh, they've really lost all of all of their advantage in handheld. It's it's selling fine, but it's not really what what they used to do. So, well, I it's think selling pretty well now. The 3DS yeah. is everyone has one in Japan, not not uh, in other but countries. I feel like they they're, they're grasping at straws somewhat. Um, mm. Puzzle and Dragons huge hit in Japan, and they've they've basically made a Puzzle and Dragons Pokemon game. In fact, there is an official Mario Puzzle and Dra Dragons game coming out quite soon. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just, yeah, I, I wonder if it's going to resonate with the kind of people who uh, pick up Nintendo consoles to play them. And I wonder if it's going to work very well with their game design ethos. I think they would have to change a lot the way they, the kind of games that they make. Um there are there are other companies out there making games that 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 fit this this business model a lot better than Nintendo, which is their games are so much about craft and about a really beautifully finished pro product. By the same token, um, one of the things that kind of saddens me is I, I really love puzzle games, and Nintendo's an absolute past master of, of the puzzle game. You can't sell a puzzle game for uh, forty euros anymore. It just can't be done. People are not willing to pay that kind of money for a game where you match gems with each other, despite the fact that you can <laughs> happily spend uh, hundreds of hours, more hours than you would ever spend playing a AAA shooter on that That's kind of true, game. Yeah. 
It's, it's just become a change in consumer expectation. And if, if that particular genre of games is going to survive, uh, then I guess I guess you need to adapt to what the audience's expectations of it uh, are and, uh, yeah, uh, sell it for less money or sell it in a different way. But um, uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Uh, to be honest, I think Nintendo are experimenting. I, I, would, uh, I would be surprised if it goes to the core of their entire uh, philosophy because actually despite the problems that they've had with Wii U and even the rather slow start to 3DS, they are still um, the biggest games publisher out there in terms of, uh, sorry, the biggest publisher developer out there in terms of um, shifting uh, millions of copies of the games that they make themselves. There's no one that can match them apart from uh, uh, your old employers, Patrick Blizzard. So <laughs> I, I um, uh, and they're really, really good at that. And even with with uh, consoles that they've had that have been less successful, like the Wii U, like the GameCube back in the day, they've always turned a profit because they've always been able to get incredible attach rates and sell, sell millions of copies of their games. Well, how many co- copies of Mario Kart Wii was it they sold? So like 15 million or something? Oh, so it's ridiculous, yeah. There's, if there's one company in the world left that still knows how to shift boxes, uh, it, it's Nintendo. So I really don't think that they're um, they're going to turn their back on that completely uh as a as a way to to make games but uh, yeah certainly they're they're going to be under a lot of pressure from their shareholders at the minute they're going to perceive that they've lost a lot of ground in both the home and mobile markets so they're going to be experimenting to see what sticks but yeah i i would be surprised if this if they find the harmony between this and their and their game design and their hardware design in the long run and nintendo has always been about that harmony like that's for the same reason that you'll never see their games appear on mobile platforms that they don't own themselves it's like they they always believe that the the hardware and the game design and the the entire ethos has to match up into a a single sort of coherent whole uh and a game like this it just it seems to clash with that ethos to me so yeah yeah my prediction is it's not going to last well let's hope it remains an experiment i mean maybe there's a spot on Nintendo's hardware for that kind of games, but it's not, you know, it is a a very well-crafted game. It's a well-designed game. It's just that it's not this game itself that that (laughs) makes me afraid. It's the implications, the potential implications um, for the future that, that, that fill me with dread, as I was saying. Let's hope they stay there and they stay potential um, or they stay in their little corner of the eShop. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. My brain goes to the same dark place. It, it absolutely yeah. jumps the gun and just goes to, oh, God, what if the future is like this? Which I can't imagine it's going to be. I don't think that this means Nintendo's going to stop making $40 games for, for 3DS. Uh, oh, no, never. Also, of course, yeah. That's a part, part of the reason why I just look at this and I'm just like, well, well, why? I don't think anyone's going to buy a 3DS to play a Candy Crush clone when everyone has a phone in their pocket already. And then I bought the 3DS because I, with the expectation of having to spend $40 here and there for really great experiences. Well, to be honest, if I, if I, okay, if I, if I put on the, I'm being truthful, uh, hat for a second, um, I, I quite enjoy playing this game. Uh, I've played it a few times. I think I'm going to turn back to it here and there. I w- probably would not have paid for it, even if it was, you know, five bucks. Maybe if it was five bucks, maybe. But uh, I, I'm, I might not have paid for it. And I'm probably never going to buy anything to, you know, pay to, to, 
to to buy a, a currency in the game uh, and I still get to play it so there are benefits you know I play half an hour here and there and it's free so that there's also a good side to the whole thing it's just again implications and potentials that make us worry um I, well, I put it this way: I don't play PopCap games anymore, and I loved PopCap. I really mm. loved their stuff, and I just don't play them anymore. But Solitaire Blitz just totally turned me off them. And when they when they uh, switched the business model for Plants vs Zombies too, I just yeah, I, it's not it's not a thing that I get pleasure from engaging with. I can play the games for a bit, and I really enjoy the quality of the game design. I'm sure um, Pokemon Shuffle will be the same. But uh, but then as soon as those energy meters kick in, and I'm just like, no, I don't, I want no yeah. part of this. If if I could pay, if I'm enjoying the game and I could pay ten bucks to make all that stuff disappear forever, I would. But uh, <laughs> yeah. if I have to engage with those systems and worry about how much I'm spending and when in these tiny increments, that's not going to work for me. But then, as we were saying, I'm the sort of person who is comfortable spending money on video games, and there are a very large audience out there who enjoy <laughs> playing video games, yeah. but are not comfortable spending ten dollars on them. They're spending, mm. they're comfortable spending, uh, spending sixty cents here and there. So, yeah. Mm. All right, let's move on to the last big controversy of the past few uh, days or a couple of weeks. Uh, the Peter Molyneux uh, interview and debacle, we could say. Uh, maybe not, well, that might be a bit harsh, but basically, if you don't know who Peter Molyneux is... Um, He's a revered game developer and designer from, he's been in the, in the industry for 30 years, uh, and he had a, a, a tendency to overpromise uh, for sure. On the game design, he's a, a dreamer, and he dreams big, and usually his, desi his design idea end up not coalescing into the games he delivers. Um, of course, he's basically the creator of the god game genre with Populous, and uh, to lesser extent uh, he continued to move it forward with uh, black and white and other games uh, but in games like uh, fable and and the like uh, he promised a lot and in the end he didn't quite deliver he was made the uh, poster person for milo that game that um, uh, never really came out even i think which was a demo where he was saying we would he would create a virtual child that we would get attached to and feel emotions with and things like that and it didn't happen there were a lot of these kinds of promises uh Now, things took a different turn when he, he went to Kickstarter and asked for money for uh, the game Goddess, um, and they reached their goals, which were, I think, 400,000 pounds, uh, and they reached over 500,000. And the game, that was in 2013. Um, the game is still not complete, and some of the promises from the game, uh, the game's uh, Kickstarter, like a Linux version and other things, have not been fulfilled at all. Uh, add to that the fact that he launched uh, a game on mobiles called Curiosity where people had to tap millions of time on a cube to take away of the cube until they reached its core and collectively all of the, the people who did this uh, ended up reaching the core and the one person who clicked on the last one who tapped on the last one got the promise from Molyneux that his life would be changed would literally be never be the same again because He would be the god of god and goddess, and he would also have a portion of the income from the game. Um, 
goddess has not materialized in the way that people hoped uh, obviously when you do a, a kickstarter like project you're not actually buying the finished game you're encouraging the developer or helping the developer get on the horse and try to develop the game um, but uh, rock paper shotgun did an interview did a, a sort of scathe, not scathing but very uh, cold and harsh uh, article about the state of goddess uh, a while ago and uh, Molyneux wanted to respond and uh, he called up Rock Paper Shotgun uh, and the journalist did an interview that was I think is fair to characterize to characterize as harsh um, on the other hand he uh, well he, he started the interview with questions like are you a pathological liar which is very aggressive obviously uh, but he also took the guy to task. Uh, if, if the form was uh, aggressive, uh, it, it wasn't like he was being, uh, you know, raising uh, uh, things that were untruthful. Uh, he was putting uh, Molyneux in front of the fact that he had a lot of experience in game design and still uh, he didn't realize that the game wouldn't be ready in seven months when he was promising it on Goddess and things like that. Molyneux was... Uh, it became very emotional uh, on both sides on the interview. And then Molyneux uh, sort of gave another series of interviews where he was saying, basically, it's over. I will never speak to the press again, which he ended up doing uh an hour later, he d he gave basically three different interviews saying, this is my last interview. Um, so I guess my question is, um, are it's there are a million questions in this and it's a relatively complex topic to cover but my, the one question i would take out of it is are we at fault for believing molyneux when we know he he has these tendencies of over promising or is he as at fault for uh, you know, promising things that he should have known he couldn't deliver on, and even more specifically on a Kickstarter setting, and even more specifically to one specific person, I think it was Polygon who was saying that he went out of his way to specifically disappoint one person uh, in, in a big way. Uh, so the question is, who, what, what to make of all of this? Uh, anyone can take it. It's, <laughs> it's a difficult one. <laughs> I don't. Th I don't think anyone comes out of this mess very well, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> and I, I do include th those of us in the games uh, media in that. Um, we have. It's very important to to say that we have been uh, entirely uh, uh, in cahoots with Peter Molyneux in talking up his uh, impossible features throughout his entire career. Now, we love in the press. We love Peter Molyneux because. Um, he, he talks about grand things. He's a he's a personality who's very recognisable, whose name everybody knows, which uh, is something that everybody responds to uh, in press and in the journalism. And uh, he's brilliant in interviews. He's uh, he's captivating. He's funny. He makes all these grand statements. He's really quotable. He'll give you you'll get a headline out of every time you interview him. And so we've we've been uh, totally complicit in building him up and building up some of the things that he's promised um i also feel like he has been he has he's he's deserved some rough treatment for the way goddess has been handled but and and he's made some really big mistakes but i also feel like it's probably 
been a bit over the top what he's got from some quarters of the press and from some quarters of the, of the gaming community as well like it's not uh not fulfilling kickstarter promises is not a good thing but it doesn't necessarily deserve the level of vitriol and and, and bullying that um he's been subject to so i i kind of agree with tim Schaffer when he says that the uh the reaction has been has been rather out of proportion though of course um tim Schaffer would say that because we still don't have uh, episode two of Broken Age. Yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say he's a bit of a, a biased reaction there. Yeah, no, I, I think it. I think it did get a bit ugly. Uh, I mean, it, it, this this thing happens. Uh, it's, it's not. It's not the best. Uh, it's, it's when the games press. I think, or or any, or any aspect of the press, to be honest, because it happens in all spheres of life, doesn't show its best side when uh, somebody's down and we all we all pile on to get our kicks in. Um, I, I personally, I'm proud of the coverage that we on Eurogamer did on this issue. We had a wonderful article that um, our news editor Wesley Yinpool wrote about, uh, which was an interview with the, the guy who won Curiosity and was supposed to be the god of goddess. Um, and we, we had a pretty fair article on Peter himself, but um, it, it's it, you know those were two articles in an ocean of coverage. And it, when you're when you're him, you must feel not like the specific blows and say, well, this guy's been fair or this guy hasn't. You must just feel like everybody has turned on you. So I feel for Peter. Um, I think it's been a really hard time for him. Uh, all of that said, uh, and including, uh, yeah, I've got to say he's made he's made a couple of really bad miscalculations. One is I think he used Kickstarter very badly. Used it in the wrong way. He didn't have a good enough plan. He was he used it too early on in the project's lifespan when uh, its design wasn't clear enough, and uh, he didn't really think about the fact that he was going to be answerable to the people that the, the effectively were funding his new studio. Um, and the other one, and I, I honestly well, well believe- to him it wasn't it wasn't different from getting money from publishers, or I guess it always is. But he was yeah. answerable to the to the people who were funding the game either way. Um, yes, but he, I, I don't think he was aware enough of the difference in the situation when right. he's dealing directly with his, directly with his uh, end users. The other one, and I firmly believe we would not be in anything like this situation if this weren't true, Goddess is just a bad game. It's a, it was a bad <laughs> game from the start. It's bad, from, it's, it's bad at a fundamental conceptual level. The issue is not really that it's not finished quickly enough or that it doesn't have all the features that they've promised. The issue is that it's terrible and this is the major difference between peter molyneux now and the peter molyneux that we've been having this conversation about for years now is that you can say what you like about various things that the fable games did or didn't deliver that he promised but at the end of the day they were really nicely professionally made games that meet a, met a certain bar of quality and that you could have a good time with if you played and that's been true of nearly everything the guy's published in his career the difference with goddess is it's just not very good and um I think fundamentally was conceived as a free-to-play mobile game, but funded as a fifteen-quid, twenty-dollar uh, PC game, and, and that, that fundamental difference has, has been why everyone's so angry about it. If it was a really good game where he was just slow on delivering his promises, I think the reaction wouldn't be anything like as strong as it has been. Yeah, makes sense. Um... Garrett, any thoughts on the... I mean, you're a little bit younger. Uh, I'm sure you don't have as much uh, reverence for, for Molyneux as people of our old age are. Uh, I've played a do. bunch of his games, but and I, okay. I I agree with kind of everything that was said. Like, uh, all of his past games have been fun. They, they never match up with how he pitches them. But that at 
you know, until this happened, that was to me, I just kind of saw that as a fun character quirk of, of Molyneux. It's like, oh, well, he's going to go up and say a bunch of stuff that isn't going to come to fruition. Uh, but I'll still probably play his games because, like you said, Ali, they're they're good. I mean, they're not they don't bend the genre and, and blow our minds, but they're absolutely solid gaming experiences. Um, but I mean, with this in particular, I don't know. I think they're both at fault. I think Molyneux really let the backers down. And I think the interviewer over at Rock, Paper, Shotgun uh, was just horribly unprofessional. Um, you know, yeah, I agree he was over-aggressive. Uh, but at the same time, um, we we often discuss the uh, proximity between game journalists and publishers. And I'm not saying everyone should be, you know, the attack dog. Uh, but I do think there is some value to having people being maybe not that aggressive you you can remain a little bit more <laughs> polite but uh, I think he overcompensated for because at some point you have to call people on their uh, mm. failings uh, and it's true that uh, as you were saying uh, Ali the the gaming press in general and even gamers we were sort of uh, uh, complacent with with Molyneux's uh, uh, fantasies mm. um but i think there was a little bit of a situation where it was the straw that that broke the camel's back mm. the general you know the general public's uh, back the general public is the camel in this metaphor um and the the over adjustment was a little bit too harsh for sure uh, but yeah. it's not like it was without cause at the beginning because um I don't know. You know, the, there are some elements of this whole thing that make me uncomfortable in regards to Molyneux. The fact, for example, that he is uh, essentially, he hasn't said it, so I'm half speculating, but he, it seems he's kind of abandoning uh, Goddess now. He's going to his uh, uh, next project at 22 Cans and leaving the game in the hands of uh, the the core designer who himself is uh, admitting that the game is never going to be what it was supposed to be, um, which is, you know, he, he is saying things like when you, you, it's art when you design a game. You can't say, you know, I'm going to make a plan and build the thing exactly like I planned it. You try ideas, you see how they work, you, and I mean, honestly, the best games are designed with iteration. So it's not like you don't understand um, the, that process. It's completely true. The games that we end up being the more the more boring and formulaic are the ones where you set out from the beginning and say it's going to have this this and this and that's when we're going to ship it and that's how it's going to work well, but this, this is what i mean about him using kickstarter wrong i think uh i mean he's right you do have to fail sometimes uh, and i and goddess is a failure and i think he's abandoning it because he probably knows that it's it's not a very good game and it's not really worth saving. The problem is is that this isn't like a year and a half of prototype work that's been done on the quiet and he has to go to his boss and say, sorry, we uh, his publishing boss and say, sorry, we have to write off the investment because it's not just working out. It's all been done in the eye of the public and with the public's direct funding. He, he should have had a concept that he was much surer of and that was already much more fleshed out, taken that to the public on Kickstarter when he was confident that he, had, that he was onto something good. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's where he's made the mistake, I think. Mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, as, as to sense. the interview, I can't, I have to be a bit circumspect because John's a friend and RPS is, uh, uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun is a site in mm. our own network. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think 
uh, I think it was. I think you're right, Patrick. I think it was an overcorrection. I think you can be you can be tough, and we should be tough in interviews without um, uh, being so personal about it, perhaps. Um, and I, I, I worry that sometimes we take this we take this stuff as a as a as a games media and also as a gaming audience a little bit too personally. Uh, and we could we could afford to be a bit less uh, emotional in our rhetoric about stuff. And you know, this goes back to all of the nastiness that happened last year as well um, in 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 other spheres of of the gaming world. So yeah, I think I think perhaps we could all chill out a bit. I think it's really really important that we do set the kind of hard questions that Rock Paper Shotgun did in that interview. Um, but uh, I think we could if we do it in a slightly less emotive way and we're a bit more. Uh, uh, a bit less personal about the way we do it. I think that would be probably be to everyone's benefit. But um, yeah. yeah, like I say, I, I, it's a bit of a mess. I don't think anybody comes out of it particularly well. Um, and if, if if Peter Molyneux is is really um, withdrawing completely from interviews, I think that'd be a great shame because uh, not only is he great for us uh, uh, in terms of providing us with loads of headlines and, and great articles, but um, uh, the, I think the gaming industry needs characters. It needs people who are memorable and who say outrageous and and surprising things. And if we and if all of our game creators get too scared to stick their necks out because they get this kind of reaction, I don't think that's going to be for the good of the gaming medium overall. You know what? I think that's the the best put uh, analysis I've heard of this whole story, and I think I'm going to let it stand as the conclusion of our uh, segment on it. And uh, actually, of the of the episode, uh, calmer heads uh, should prevail, and uh, that does uh, hold some value to me. Um, all right, unless anyone has, you know, one of you has another topic they want to uh, cover very quickly, another piece of news. No, no, all right. that doesn't. All right. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, to both of you uh, for, for being on the show. I think it was really interesting discussions. Uh, and uh, if you, dear listener, uh, want to take part of the, in the discussion, you can do so at the uh, website that hosts the show. That's frenchspin.com. And you can come and comment uh, on this episode. I'd be very interested in knowing uh, what you guys think about scores and uh, Uh, the, the decisions to forego them um, about uh, the in-app purchase-ridden games that we're seeing more and more, or maybe less and less, possibly. And of course, the Molyneux uh, uh, controversy. I'd be curious to hear from actual people and not us uh, game journalists, quote-unquote. Um, guys, if, if people want to hear more from you, where can they go uh, to find you on the internets? Garrett? Well, you can find all of my shows and whatnot over at amove.tv. That's A-M-O-V-E dot TV. Or I'm on Twitter at Garrett Art. Excellent. And of course, uh, one of the shows I enjoy the most is The Angry Chicken, where you discuss at length that horrible, horrible uh, pay-to-win game where in-app yeah. purchases <laughs> are, <laughs> are ruining everything, which is Hearthstone. Uh, you got me back into the game, Garrett. <laughs> you're, you're the reason. Um, Oli, of course, we've heard about uh, Eurogamer, Eurogamer.net. Um, where can people find you other than that? 
Uh, I tweet very occasionally on uh, at, at Ollie Welsh. That's O L I W E L S H. Uh, I'm not I'm not that active on there, but um, uh, you can also uh, hopefully from now on. Now that I've got these uh, big reviews changes out of the way, I'll be writing more often on uh, Eurogamer as well, and you'll be able to find my articles there. Cool. Oh, by um, by the way, it's so if people want to check out Eurogamer, uh, would you have a specific I don't know review or feature or something that uh, we could recommend them to get into the the site? Uh, um, the the one that I mentioned earlier, uh, Wesley's uh, art uh, interview with the uh, the guy who won Curiosity. Uh, I think is a, a absolutely superb example of the kind of features and news reporting we do. Uh, the title is "The God Who Peter Molyneux Forgot," uh, and I would I'd encourage you to read that because it's a it's an excellent piece. Excellent, the God that Peter Molyneux forgot. That's that. There's a, a, a wonderful amount of poetry in that title. Uh, thank you very much, Ali. Thank you, Garrett. Guys, if you want to find me on the internet, I'm on Twitter, not Patrick. And as I was saying, I am. Uh, we are also on the site FrenchSpin.com. That's going to do it for us. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much, and see you then. Bye. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.